Welcome to the CultureWise Podcast, where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace. Here we aim to discuss topics relating to how followers of Jesus can more effectively reach Latter-day Saints in their relational networks. My name is Daniel Schugert, and I'm joined today by Ross Anderson and our guest, Eric Nelson. Eric is the lead pastor of South Mountain Community Church and has been in Utah engaging in ministry for about the last eight years. Today, we want to listen uh, to hear how God has used South Mountain Community Church and Eric um, to be involved in ministry uh, all around Utah and specifically with Mormons uh, in discipleship and in his specific church uh, situation. We're looking forward to hearing that. But Eric, uh, tell us first a little bit about yourself. Uh, where where have you come from? How did you get to uh, the position you're in today? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, guys. Um, my story uh, into Utah and into this, uh, what I do now, is is pretty interesting. Um, I'll kind of just back up. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so uh, a decidedly irreligious culture. Uh, and so became a Christian at 18, had some friends who were Christians, um, and they were cool. I didn't know you could be cool and a Christian at the same time. And so um, I was pretty curious. So I began to uh, investigate what it was that they believed. So I found a Bible on the bookcase in my family room, and I started to read the New Testament. In fact, it was only the New Testament. It was a New Testament-only Bible. That, that, was, that was fantastic. I read for about two or three weeks, had read most of the New Testament, and by the end was convinced Jesus was who he said he was, did mm-hmm. he, what he said he would do, and was alive. And yeah. so started to follow him, and just kind of based on my wiring, my temperament, my personality, got involved in a local church and started to serve in a youth ministry. Uh, at one point, the associate pastor said, hey, Eric, come tell your story, like the longer version of the story I just told you. And and he said, after I told that story to the, the high schoolers, he said, that was great. Why don't you tell, why don't you come back and speak again next week? And I said, I don't have any more stories. That was it. And he goes, no, no, you'll pick one from the Bible and you'll teach through that. And I was like, wow, okay, I'll, let's try that. So he began to disciple me and that turned into a, um, an internship and uh, eventually went to uh, Multnomah Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Uh, did a master's uh, of divinity there and um, met a really good friend who was named Jeremy Peeler still a great friend of mine. And one of our professors uh, went to Talbot with Paul Roby, the founder of SMCC. So when we graduated, Jeremy, based on that connection, came to Utah. I went to work at a church in the Pacific Northwest. Well, the first summer, Jeremy invited me to speak at uh, South Mountain's high school camp. I don't even know what year it was. Um, probably, oh gosh, 11 years ago. I remember my, my daughter had just been born. Had never been to Utah before, had never been around a church like South Mountain before or leaders like Paul Roby and the team. Got back from that camp. They said, hey, heard some good things about you. Do you think you'd ever want to join our team? And I said, no, I'm good with Mm. what I'm doing. I was a youth pastor and a worship pastor in in the Pacific Northwest. Well, a couple years later, uh, Paul and I, we would stay in touch. Um, I was just feeling a passion for church planting. uh, And the setting I was in didn't really have an avenue for that. And so Paul called again and said, hey... We're going to Utah County. Let me tell you about Utah County. Um, It's where BYU is, the Missionary Training Center at the time, about 90% LDS. And uh, I was pretty naive uh, and thought, uh, this sounds amazing. Uh, A little bit ignorant to what was going on in Utah County, but uh, but said yes. So I like to say Paul like drafted me in the final round of the NFL draft, and eventually we kind of won a championship. That's how I feel about my story. <laughs> so um, I stand on Paul's shoulders, moved here. At, at that time, I was 27, 28, had a brand new baby. My wife um, had just had Jack, our son, Nora, our daughter was three. 
And uh, we got after it and we planted uh, a campus. It was a gift to my family. It was the perfect mix of church planting and vision support, resource support. Um, it didn't kill my family, didn't burden my family, which can be the yeah. story of so many planters. Um, four years in, uh, Lehigh had grown. It was doing well. Um, we were adapting our teaching model. Um, so at that time, I moved into a teaching pastor role and began to rotate around to our uh, five campuses. Um, one of them's in Spanish. I didn't go there very often. I don't speak Spanish, but uh, <laughs> rotate through the four campuses that are in English. And uh, um, uh, kind of through that, I built influence and relationship and trust with the staff and the people at those campuses. And as Paul began to look towards retirement, um, probably three years ago now, uh, we brought in a succession um, a company to help us through it. And it seemed like I was the leader at the time who had the DNA and the vision of South Mountain and the trust and, and perhaps the the skill set to lead. And so we began uh, a succession process. And so I moved into an executive pastor role that still was a teaching role as well. And then um, July of last year, stepped into the lead pastor role at SMCC through a big succession process, which is oh so important. Churches where the founding pastor retires, especially at the size of South Mountain, um, that go through succession often struggle. The odds are not in in that in the favor of that church continuing to do well, but but we have, and so that's been um, the journey uh, for me g- moving into the the spot that I'm in now. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of people who move out to Utah for ministry come out because they feel a burden for Latter-day Saints. They feel a strong desire to reach them with the gospel. And it sounds like that isn't quite as much a huge component for you, but how did God get your attention uh, to call you out to Utah and and participate in South Mountain's plan? Yeah, no, I appreciate you making that observation. You know, um, yeah, I've been here eight years now, so I've seen a lot of people come for different reasons, but but all for ministry. And we did come for ministry. And I mm-hmm. think the passion that my wife and I had at the time is we wanted to reach people far from God, a church for the unchurched. However you want to describe that, that was important to us. And it just so happened that um, we had an opportunity uh, through South Mountain to do that. And then as I got here, I began um, to, the, the burden grew, the love mm-hmm. for this group of people grew. And so I would say we learned along the way, we were always passionate about doing ministry in places um, that needed, uh, you know, healthy gospel um, contextualized churches. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was always uh, in us, but we really did sort of um, wander into this through the invitation of Paul in, in South Mountain. And so I think... I think that's kind of unique. You know, I think some people from a different part of the country wake up one day and they're like, you know, feel, feel, uh, maybe use the word called to do that for us. It was a bit more like joining a team that was healthy and then the burden grew. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Uh, I'm curious about how would you characterize the learning curve once you got here? I mean, were there some things you read or some things you just experienced or you have mentorship? And so, so how would you uh, like capsulize the learning curve? If somebody's thinking about coming to Utah. Um, what are some things you'd say, hey, you gotta you gotta figure this out or here's how you might figure it out? Yeah, well, I had the gift of being on a team with people who uh, had been here a lot longer. and And I think that um, so often people come with a vision from a different part of the country that they think will work here. and mm. just to be completely honest, it won't work here. Yeah. And so I was able to sit in meetings every week with Paul Roby and others who understood it. So the learning curve uh, was quick but it was difficult, but I was a sponge. I was able to absorb so much, and those leaders um, poured into me. It was such a gift um, to be able to sit 
in the room, you know, at the table with a leader who had found a way to create a church for this group of people, for this culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so that accelerated the learning. I mean, it's uh, it was fantastic. So um, hopefully I'll be able to share some of that learning today. But but I think my um, the encouragement I have is if, if you want to do ministry in Utah, there are people getting it done. And the more you can sit with them and ask questions and approach it with humility versus assuming what works somewhere else will work here the quicker you will go through that learning curve. And so now eight years into this, you know, it's it's my responsibility to help our new team members and our church understand the vision and learn how to do ministry here. Mm-hmm. So I, I would just say um, it was just weekly meetings. It was, uh, yeah, a lot of reading, um, but really just being on a team with people who had the experience was so valuable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said that you really had the, the right DNA for some of the steps that you've taken along the journey. Mm-hmm. How would you describe what, what is that DNA that God built in you in relationship to how you engaged with the lost, how you uh, focus in in discipleship? Yeah, man, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, at SMCC, we have our, our staff values that we want to kind of kind of capture some of that DNA and talk about what it looks like to be um, successful. I think one of them is just um, a missionary mindset. I think, you know, um, and we've seen this over the years, um, uh, there are people who come from other churches and other uh, SMCC, you know, on paper and on the website, we look like kind of your mega church multi-site thing. And yet, if you come from a megachurch multi-site thing elsewhere, you get here and you quickly learn it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so theological precision is, is crucial to effectiveness here. That's in my DNA. That's in Paul Roby's DNA. And it's in the DNA of SMCC. So theological precision absolutely matters. So coming here with Christian language or sort of loose Christian verbiage, uh, which we see in the songs that are sung across the country and in the preaching that happens across the country... Um, that's not going to cut through. Uh-huh. That's not going to cut through here. Yeah. So theological precision matters. The missionary mindset is, I'm going to learn this culture, and, I, and I'm hungry. I'm going to work hard. I mean, long hours, um, it, it's a grind, kind of under-resourced, understaffed, you know, compared to some other places probably. So theological precision, the ability to hustle, that has to be there, and the ability uh, to learn. I think the other thing, too, that's really, really important is you do need to craft theological paradigms or worldview paradigms that make sense. Um, because it's pretty easy to get bogged down in some, into some real nuanced things. And you kind of got to come up for air and say, what are the, sort of the, the big rocks that we're going to put into our theological vision as a mm-hmm. church and into the preaching? How are we going to preach in this culture? And so we were able to do that. I was able to do that um, and, and develop that theological voice. So that connects back to theological precision. So... Um, yeah, I think those are some things that are that are important to um, my DNA. That's allowed me to uh, now be a be a leader over a team that has some of that in the DNA as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've heard some people voice it like, um, "I don't just want to talk about the things that I'm most interested in or the things that are most important to me, mm-hmm. but rather really understand." the audience that I'm speaking to, the people that I'm trying to reach, what matters to them, what's important to them. And with theological precision, uh, we don't need to answer absolutely every question that exists, mm-hmm. but rather we really want to focus in on uh, the the matters that are important to those we're trying to reach. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are some, some big things that um, 
if you listen to you know messages at SMCC or just have conversations with me and the team, some of the big things would be, and maybe you've covered these before in other podcasts, um, would just just be religion, irreligion, and gospel. So being able to sift through those religion, uh, I do, now God's going to do for me, I've done this, so now he owes me, uh, really a, a duty type of mindset. Mm-hmm. Irreligion is very similar. I'm saving, I'm justifying myself. Um, I... Um, I prove I'm somebody by what I do. Irreligion puts that over me. Religion is very much the same. It's just the other side of the coin. We've adapted that from the work of uh, the late Tim Keller. So religion, irreligion, gospel, that is so important. Um, something else that we talk a lot about is, is simply delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, devotion and delight together. Um, that's something, you know, you see a lot in the work of like a John Piper. Um, so uh, right now I'm, I'm reading uh, Randy Alcorn um, on happiness. And so I think that that's a really important part of the human experience. So at that point, you know, you sort of come come out of just LDS culture and just begin to talk about what it looks like to be human. And mm-hmm. so delight is a big, a big part of that. Um, and then to press in just a little bit more, um, we've adapted uh, kind of how we talk about full devotion to include really three big things, authority, identity, and activity. Authority is I delight. So there's that word. I delight in submitting to what Jesus says, not what I say or what anybody else says. So authority issues matter. Um, in post-Christian culture, that matters. In LDS culture, that matters. Who's the authority? Who do we trust? Identity, what's the story I tell myself about myself, which sounds like this. I delight in defining um, myself by what Jesus says and what he's done, not what I do. And then activity, I delight in doing for others what Jesus has done for me. And so, you know, a, a lot of churches, I think, focus in on you know, discipleship and just do, do, do. It's all activity-based or behavior-based. But as I read the New Testament in Christ, that sort of sort of shorthand way of referring to what does it mean to submit to Jesus includes authority and identity first that then shapes our activity. And so um, those are some of the things that, that, that we've put into our language that's allowed us to create um, uh, a way of looking at one's life in light of the gospel. And so authority, identity, activity has been been huge for us. And so, um, yeah, those are some some things maybe that would answer that question. Yeah, yeah, this is very interesting. So I'm curious more about this authority, identity, activity paradigm. H- how does that practically flesh out with your ministry and the church? Yeah, um, you know, we, we constantly are talking about worldview. Um, what's the story of reality that accounts for the facts that we see in our world? What's what's mm-hmm. the story of reality? Yeah. So we're constantly talking about reality. We're constantly talking about worldview, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where is this all headed? I mean, those are those are some major worldview questions. I think everybody has, and so. Um, I would say every message at SMCC is connected to either authority, identity, activity, or a combination of the three. Now, because those are a bit abstract and it's hard to program around that, you know, we have five campuses. We want to we want to drive people to devotion and delight. We've defined devotion as those three things: authority, identity, activity. But on a practical level, what does that look like? Well, we've just come up with this, and I don't know if it's it's uh, you know, it's been done before, but we just have chosen a head, heart, hands model. So, our minds, we want those to submit to Jesus and what He says. So that falls into the authority category. So we have a lot of classes. We call it our SMCCU track. SMCCU is designed to equip people's um, heads, their minds, in really an authority ma- manner. Uh, and then identity connects really to the heart. Um, and so our groups uh, are really designed for hearts to connect. We want to equip people's hearts in community. And then uh, hands, of course, corresponds to activity. 
And so as I, you know, began to take over SMCC in this next chapter, we're coming up on our 25-year anniversary, really my vision was to take the precision and excellence of Sunday um, and stretch it out Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. Jesus is bigger than Sunday, we've been saying. And so um, we've been working hard to take Sunday. My job Sunday is pretty simple. I want to inspire with some of the stuff we're talking about today, someone to take a next step Monday through Friday. And we're not trying to recreate the wheel here. We're not trying to be new and and brilliant and sexy. We're just trying to be clear. Mm -hmm. And so providing this clarity has really helped our staff rally around a discipleship model. Um, That seems to be working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seems to be working. So... Um, the, you know, all that's how we do it at a church level on the sort of the organizational corporate level uh, of how we cooperate, so to speak, across five locations. But these are the same conversations I'm having with my neighbors too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's really no different. They have authority questions, identity questions. Who am I? Um, Utah is a very image-driven place. So identity is constantly something they're working through. Where does my worth come from? Where does my value come from? And so this plays out on the stage when the lights are on and the mic's on, but also plays out in living rooms and stuff too. These are the types of conversations um, that I think are helpful to LDS people. But but this is why I'm a Jesus follower too. I mean, m- he is my authority. My identity comes from him and my activity is a response to what he's done for me. And so really this is so um, so just in my DNA that it's... That it's um, just overflowing into into our ministry too. So that's kind of mm-hmm. how it all connects for me. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love how this is so connected to discipleship, that a life following Jesus has a reformed sense of authority, a reformed identity, and reformed activities. Yep. But even, yeah, stepping back, on, on our podcast, we have discussed some of these issues as they're so relevant to Latter-day Saints that they're thinking in terms of their authority structure. Right, right, because, yeah, religion... And and I'll just say this, religion, whether it's the religion of Utah or fundamentalism in any form, is always activity first. It's behavior driven. It's obey, have the right activity so that you are accepted. But the gospel is completely different. It's we're going to choose the right authority first, then we're going to submit to what they say about my identity, and Mm -hmm. then my behavior follows. Mm -hmm. And this is really the pathway to to delight and happiness Mm -hmm. in God. And... um, so that's been, g- getting the order right is crucial. And unfortunately, I see a lot of churches, they seem to focus in on discipleship is, you know, I evangelize, I worship, I have spiritual disciplines, private devotions, like all of that. And all that matters, but you have to get authority and identity right first, because it's all the overflow of my identity in Christ. A gospel identity produces gospel motivation for activity. That's really precise theology for us. Mm-hmm. And that's been just freedom to the person who's their whole life worked backwards activity mm-hmm. first. Yeah. So tell tell us a story or so of how you have used this in an individual way with j- just being a person sharing with the lost, a Latter-day Saint. How have you used this paradigm in conversation? Yeah. Um, that's such a, a wonderful question. You know, uh, I, I listen to some of the other podcasts that you guys have put out, and you know, you guys um, have done a great job speaking to, um, you know, Mormon theology and history. You know, and um, I, I think the one thing I, I want to be able to contribute, you know, there are experts who understand that far more. Ross, I think you're one of them, far more than I do. Um, but 
in in conversations, I've just noticed the importance of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Because if it's your activity that gets you in with God or into the community, we have a value belong before you believe. But if it's behave to belong, you're not vulnerable about any weakness, any shortcomings. And so when a spiritual leader is vulnerable, and vulnerability is... Uh, exposing yourself a little bit. It's showing a side of weakness. But in all relationships, vulnerability is how we actually connect with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have coffee with someone whose life is perfect, they're Superman. Yeah. You can't connect to that. You're like, wow, it must be great to be you every day. But when someone shares with you vulnerability, I mean, those are the handles for relationships, you know? We can hang on to that. And so vulnerability um, has been what I've noticed to be a huge trust builder or at least the open door to spiritual conversations. Now, I will say this, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I'd be friends with someone five, 10 years before you had one spiritual conversation. Hmm. Here, you know, it's day one that you have that spiritual conversation because your neighbors are spiritual. They're interested in that, you know, Um, which is is fantastic. But that conversation probably lacks some vulnerability. And so when you can go first with vulnerability in conversation about authority, identity, or activity, when you can go first about questions you might have, um, the, the the guard comes down, the walls come down, you begin to look like a safe person because you're kind of revealing that you're secure to address your vulnerabilities. And so I, I've just noticed that um, bringing vulnerability into the conversation, into the spiritual conversation goes a long way in terms of connecting, building relationships and having meaningful conversations. So, you know, with all our communicators at SMCC too, I, I ask them to have a moment of vulnerability every weekend on the stage. It doesn't mean, you know, you know, it, you know, all the juicy, gory details of your story. We want to build trust too, but vulnerability done um, in, a, in a, man, a socially intelligent, emotionally intelligent way can be very valuable. Yeah, that's a great point, and I, I do. I really appreciate the whole emphasis on vulnerability. I think it's so huge and so essential. But all the years I've been in Utah, um, I think Christians. There, there's been maybe this is breaking down a little bit, but I think in the past Christians have felt like they have they're in a arms race, so to speak, with Mormonism with about righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've hesitated, or people have hesitated to be vulnerable because then I lose the arms race. Mm-hmm. Then I have to prove that I'm, we're more righteous than they are and so forth. And, and, and I realized that that's just a completely, we've bought into their worldview. We've mm-hmm. brought into the, their story, their values. And we've abandoned the idea that my identity is named, is in who Jesus is and, right. and so forth. But as we're saying, uh, we're accepting their premise that my identity is based on what I can accomplish and what I can do. And so really, for a Christian, um, because because I'm loved by God and I have this Im- immense security in, in His favor that's never going to change toward me, then I can be vulnerable. Right. And that gives me a safe place to do that. And what I've experienced over the years is how powerful that is in a relationship with somebody when, when the wheels come off in their life, mm-hmm. they don't have anybody they can talk to within their own culture, within their own circle. They will talk to the trusted Christian friend, mm-hmm. but that trusted Christian friend won't be available unless they've, also, they've, they've sort of uh, led the way yep. with those kind of attitudes. Yeah. Vulnerability translates to safety. If you're comfortable exposing parts of you that are less than ideal, it tells somebody else, I'm safe to do that with too. Mm-hmm. And that is huge, especially in a culture that, um, you know, hides that uh, in a lot of ways. And so, uh, 
Yeah, what you said is is absolutely spot on. Um, and of course, it's 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 right at the heart of the gospel. If he's my righteousness, I got nothing to lose, nothing to prove. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it is connected to a gospel identity. You know, the thing that I, I think is really interesting, um, connected to sort of the emotional health of vulnerability, but also there's another word that I've learned from Dr. John Townsend. He's in, in my mind, he's like the uh, the master of emotional health. I don't know if you've if your listeners are familiar with Dr. John Townsend and Henry Cloud. I've I've done a lot of work in my own life with them. Side note: the thing that usually takes down a leader is not their competency; it's their character. So over the last few mm-hmm. years, I've really poured into my my character. I'm, we have a message coming up where we're going to um, address all the the stuff on the documentaries right now around mega churches and mega problems. That's actually the the title of the message. But uh, it's the character stuff that you have to, to focus on. But there's another word that, that I learned from John Townsend. It's the word attunement, which means to really uh, tune into the emotion of the person that, that you're with. So what I thought coming here, and I see this a lot with people who are new to Utah, is, you know what, I've, I've understood the LDS worldview as it's written, you know, as it is in the books or whatever. Uh, you know, I've learned it in this kind of squeaky clean uh, model, you know, and then, uh, so I came here with that in mind, uh, only to discover that I don't know if I've met uh, any two LDS people who have the same worldview. You know what I mean? It's it's very interesting that it's a, it's a culture first, not mm-hmm. a set of theological, you know, beliefs or, or a doctrine, so to speak. Now, that was interesting for me because you kind of got to unlearn how to engage that. And so the ability to attune to the emotion of your neighbor who might be LDS is so important because you discover, oh, they're not like the person I read about in the books. Um, there might be some similar trends, and certainly there are, but um, by being vulnerable first and having the skill of attunement, which really is the ability to tune your emotion, to match their emotion, especially when they're in need, when that moment comes, now you're in an emotionally healthy place. So when the conversation turns to theology, you're able to then go there with them. And and what I've discovered is that for a lot of people who are processing, doubting, going through a spiritual emergency, um, they're sort of just thrown into the um, the pool of irreligion, atheism, agnosticism, skepticism. And we're kind of back to how do we know what's true? That's just a typical worldview thing. Does truth exist? And then how do we know what's true? And then where do we start? You know. And so at SMCC, we do a lot of apologetics because what we've noticed is that when people tend to leave the faith they grew up with, now they don't know what they believe anymore. And rather than, you know, and I've seen this so many times, especially at SMCC with the people I, I love and care about, um, they have about a million questions and not every question needs to be asked at once. And to be honest, there are questions that should be asked before others. And so we have to help them navigate. We call it the triage process. Triage is what's the process of treating this injury in, in the correct way. Um, and so we did a series on that because, you know, uh, I'll, I'll get asked questions that are very nuanced. Hey, what do we do with the Nephilim in the Old Testament? You know, and this person doesn't know if truth exists. And it's right. like, that is an important question. <laughs> And we'll get there in time. And maybe we need to answer it now if it is the hurdle for you asking other questions. But maybe there's some other questions we should ask first um, around the resurrection, around Jesus himself, around does truth exist? What do we know about the creation of the universe? How does that tell us that miracles are possible so that the resurrection could be possible? Some of those simple apologetics things become very, very important for someone going through a spiritual emergency. So Man, this is a lot, but this is this is all playing out every time I talk with with my neighbor about mm-hmm. faith. 
Yeah, it's so true. Often, even in medical terms, because you're using the medical term triage, yeah. that you see an issue, but yep. it may not be the biggest issue or the most urgent issue. And so the visible issue or the loudest issue mm-hmm. may need to be ignored for a moment in order to get deeper beneath it. Maybe there's yeah. a real bigger problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the things we said in the triage series, and you know, if you go through a spiritual, uh, physical emergency, you you have to find the right people who can help. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who aren't the right people. And when you go on YouTube and you type in Mormonism versus Christianity, you know, I'm not sure those are always the right people. And this is why it's really helpful to find a, a group of people, a church in the area that can be a safe group for you. So you got to find the right people and you got to stop the bleeding, you know, which means the free fall has to stop at some point. You know, once your worldview starts to unravel, you just don't even know where rock bottom is anymore. Um, and so you almost have to just stabilize by going, take a breath, find the right people, uh, realize, okay, if truth exists, now I can slowly begin to rebuild my worldview. And so the triage process for us, we've, we've kind of coached our staff and our leaders on how to sort of help people navigate this versus trying to go from zero to 60 all at once, every question all at once. They're up on YouTube till 2 a.m. every night for three months and then eventually throw up their hands. That's not going to produce longevity uh, in health spiritually. And so we, we talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some things that you've seen as patterns in the triage process? What, what typically needs to be addressed first? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, just basic human needs. I mean, you got to get good night's sleep. You gotta, you gotta get some, get some rest. You gotta, you gotta eat. You gotta keep breathing. I mean, as silly as that sounds, when you discover everything you built your life on is not what you thought it was, mm-hmm. uh, panic attack sets in. Literally, physically, anxiety, uh, depression, um, isolation. These are all things that make it very hard to rebuild your worldview when you don't have the basics of human function in place. Yeah. So that's really important. And, and if someone's listening to that and like, seriously, come on, isn't this like a little deconstruction thing? No, this is so heavy to the people that are living it. And when they show up at SMCC, they're the most courageous people I know because they're saying, I wonder if there's something else. And, mm-hmm. and that is, those are, I'm so inspired um, by those people. So then one of the biggest things is trust. Trust becomes crucial. And SMCC, one of our biggest desires is that we would, through um, excellence, be able to build trust again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often likened it, and others have too, to getting out of a, in a, a relationship where you were maybe gaslighted or, or abused, and now you, you think you're the dumb one because how could you have fallen for that? And now you're not sure who you can trust anymore. And then once you start dating again, it's all moving a little too quickly. And so sometimes we see people engage at South Mountain for six months, they don't miss a Sunday, and then, and then they go away for a length of time because it all was moving just a little too quickly for them. They weren't quite, quite ready for it. So anyways, trust becomes, comes, yeah. becomes yeah. a huge thing. Um, and then... Um, you, you have to be able to navigate their questions, look at the question under the question, attune to the emotion behind the question, um, mm-hmm. because um, they are, um, yeah, it, we, we have a class called Turning Point. It's one of the classes where people go maybe first to sort of navigate um, the differences between what they were raised in and what they're learning about now. And, um, and in that class, emotions run hot. Uh, and so you have to be able to... Um, man, get that emotion right before you just give them an answer. Um, Because sometimes people aren't ready for an answer. They need someone who can sit in the pit with them. And so trust trust is a huge thing uh, in in that process. Um, 
helping people know how to think before they just discover what to think. Sometimes people come to me and they're like, Eric, just tell me, what is it? Yeah. We, in <laughs> biblical Christianity, what is the answer? And sometimes I, I would prefer to help them think through how right. to discover the answer than just give it to them because that process is actually a maturing and healthy process for them. Um, and then and then how to move forward, how to take their next steps on their own. So so those are some things that are really important in the process, the triage process, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I mean, e- even like a child who has always been fed, mm-hmm. uh, a parent would want that child to grow up to be able to feed him or herself. Yeah. And so just like you're saying, I, I don't want to just give all the answers, lay it out, but rather I want this to be a learning moment, a maturing moment where an, a new disciple can begin to learn how to feed themselves with truth and, and, and discover for themselves what God's word teaches. Absolutely. You know, you know, and I, I, I want to be really clear. There are, there are answers and people need answers to their toughest questions. Mm-hmm. And I, we don't dodge those, but of course, uh, the head and the heart are mm-hmm. at play in someone's spiritual emergency and their growth in Jesus. And so, um, vulnerability over the last few years I've discovered is the ticket Mm -hmm. to engaging with someone who sees differently than you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump into a discussion about some of the structure of South Mountain Community Church. I know there's some distinctives there, multi-site, you said mega attractional just Mm -hmm. before this, Um, even some things like the turning point class. So tell us, tell us more about the, about the structure. What are maybe some criticisms or, or how you've navigated through what it provides and offers? Yeah. Well, I'll just say, you know, I I went to a a seminary that basically told me this, you're either a mega church because you water down the gospel or you're small because you actually preach the gospel. Well, I I grew up with that criticism. Well, I, you know, I was, yeah, I did grad school with that criticism. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that if, if you if you think that, um, you need to get with somebody and just ask a few questions, you know? Um, because uh, I, I would say SMCC is as committed to theological precision, probably more committed to theological precision than attractional environments. But what we've discovered is this, and, and, and so I'll just kind of break down SMCC. Um, we're not trying to be the best, the coolest, the biggest, none of that. Um, we are trying to create uh, a specific type of culture. So the thing I learned coming here is that if Mormonism isn't held together by a set of doctrinal beliefs, although they have those, but I would say it's held together by its culture. And culture is kind of hard to put your finger on, but culture is essentially this. It's the sum total of your values and behavior. So you value something, you have these values, you have behaviors that correspond to those values, and then you build a culture. So at SMCC, we have values that we live out with certain behaviors, and all of that we call the SMCC culture. And we think someone leaving the LDS culture needs a culture of grace and truth, grace and truth, a culture of joy, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where delight comes in for us in our mission statement. So we have these five cultural values. Um, Belong before you believe is is an important one. Honor the process that God changes people from the inside out. Messages are helpful and hopeful. Um, Maturity is measured by love. And those who are fully engaged serve the guests. Those are our five values. And that's um, and then those are lived out in the behaviors of the people of our church. We we lead them in those behaviors, and it creates the culture. And that's what SMCC is first. It's a culture. That's what we're trying to do: create a very specific type of of culture, countercultural to religion, and countercultural to the predominant religion of Utah. So we're trying to build that culture, and we want to put that culture in as many in as many places as possible because we think it's an, an enjoyable culture to be a part of. It's a gospel culture. And so that's where multi-site came in is, is um, 
we want to create that culture in as many places as possible to reach as many people as possible. Um, and so uh, the thing about culture, though, is this. Um, of environments are judged instantly. Culture is judged gradually. You know, you walk into any establishment, uh, you feel the culture in the environment. So if you go to Chick-fil-A, they have a strong culture, all right? Uh, In-N-Out has a strong culture. They're all wearing the white outfit. Maybe they have the hats, the Mm -hmm. color, you know, Chick-fil-A. They say, my pleasure. That's all built into their culture. It's a behavior based on the value that they're there to serve Mm -hmm. the guest. Yeah. So people talk about having a great culture. Well, culture is experienced instantly, but it's really uh, absorbed over time environments are seen the moment you walk in. So we want to have an environment of excellence that builds trust so that people then can find themselves inside of this. We call it an irresistible culture through irresistible environments. And so we've just said, okay, based on the target group of people we're trying to reach, we just call them Jack and Jill. Uh, what type of environment do we want to create? And that's where, um, you know, music that's engaging, messages that are relevant, um, lights that are appealing, you know, you you have to contextualize what is an enjoyable experience or environment for the city I find myself in. And so all of that is environmental, designed to bring people into a culture where they can experience grace and truth, where they can experience joy. And so that's kind of, kind of the, the, kind of what goes on and in, in kind of how the sausage is made, so to speak, of SMCC. So yeah, we have five locations. Every location has a campus pastor. Um, they are a specialist in loving and shepherding their people. Um, their primary job is not to preach. Their primary job is not to strategize. Their primary job is to love people. We have a central team. Their primary job is to work on the vision and the strategy that's implemented by the campus pastors and their team on the ground. And so as we've grown, we've really had to focus in on the strategy, the lanes that each of our staff and our elder board run in my role as lead pastor. And um, that's allowed us to um, create sustainable strategies, sustainable strategies that produce fruit in the ministry. And so that's led to some strategic growth. So we're constantly shifting our staff roles um, to allow for for this. Um, And we're grateful that we have that type of uh, opportunity to hire the right people for specific roles. It hasn't been easy, but we're we're working through that. So that's some of the structure. Sundays, um, yeah, great kids ministry. We hope to have great music at all of our locations, a message that's helpful and hopeful. And then Monday through Friday, it's a next step to be equipped in the head, harder hands. We have groups and we have classes. We have teams that serve both inside and outside the walls of the church. And um, yeah, that's kind of how we talk about it. Of course, people have questions about multi-site. How centralized are you? Centralization, a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, we just look at our values and make decisions based on values. Values-based decision-making based on some of the things I'm talking about um, today. I don't want all five campus pastors trying to drop a strategy of assimilation. I want to hire one expert on assimilation who can then build a strategy. And because trust is so high on the team, we're all running plays that we didn't create because there's humility on the team. you know. There's no pride in kind of ownership. We want the best idea to win. And so it's my job to cast a vision and build a team that allows for all of this. And through that, we can go further faster. So that's kind of what we're trying to do, just simply to reach as many people. Yeah, so my, my question for you, Eric, is like talking about culture. I mean, I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not inter- as interested in the multi-site aspect of it, even though I'm part of a multi-site church, because that, that might not be something that our listeners are in a position to replicate, but they can think about their culture. So here's, here's the background thing. It's not like 
It's not like SMCC has a culture and no other church does. Everyone has a culture. Every church Every has, family a culture. has a culture. Every family has like, There's ways of doing things. There's beliefs that take shape in behaviors. There's, um, there's you know, ways of doing... And the thing about culture, it's, I mean, the way it, it works is that it keeps, helps me as an individual from having to make complex decisions over and over again all day long. Mm-hmm. I know how it's done. Yeah. I know how it's done because it's been inculcated in me through the culture that I'm part of for good or for bad you know so not all culture is good but um, my, my point is that churches have a culture regardless it's uh, but they they may never never have reflected on their culture or never have been intentional about their culture so I'm curious for our listeners is what are some ways that you guys consciously think about your culture as a church yeah and how do you evaluate that as a leadership team and uh, how often do you readdress those questions, et cetera? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, this is a massive conversation. Uh, vision leaks, culture leaks. You have to fight for your culture. You have to defend your culture. You have to say no to a lot of things to keep your culture. You have to let people walk who don't fit your culture. SMCC is not for everybody. Like, I just say that, you know? Um, so there's some questions you have to ask, you know? Why do we exist? That's a really important question. Uh uh, what will the world look like? Cause we were here, you know what I mean? And then how are we getting it done? You know, what are, those are some things that are really important questions, but at the end of the day, you have to be intentional about your values and you have to choose some. And this is why Utah needs a lot of different types of churches. Um, because, uh, you're reaching different types of people and certain values are valuable to certain types of people. So you do have to write down your values. I mean, if you're a leader listening to this, even if you're a parent listening to this, I mean, I do this in my family. What are the values that Carissa and I have for our kids? Why, oh, we go to Disneyland, not just because Disneyland's where you go. We value something as a family and Disneyland is the strategy that produces this thing in the family that we have for our kids. Um, so you do, you have, to, you have to get in a room and say, what is it that we value? What is it I'm fighting for? What is it that will not happen under my watch? What is it that, that I will say no to? What is it that I will take shots for? And you have to do that over and over again to create values. And then you have to say, well, what behaviors, what do we do now because we value these things? So if you're a small church plant and you value house church, for example, very different than multi-site, but we value inviting people into our homes. Cool. How often are you having people in your home? You know, you got you to examine what am I doing based on what I say I value. And so, yeah, questions like, uh, you know, what keeps me up at night? What, when I see it, do I get fired up about? What do my emotions respond to? All these things are really helpful in figuring out what do I value uh, as a leader? I mean, I, I could keep going, but like authority, identity, activity, like we just value the getting that order correctly. Uh, joy, we value joy. <laughs> and so we do a lot of things that look like celebration and uh, because we value joy. And so uh, it's okay to value different things. That's why God allows us to be different types of people. Um, but those values questions really do do matter. And I think if you're a leader leading anybody, you have to be clear about your values. Say, here's what we are. Uh, I hope you value these things and here's why. But if you don't value these things, I think you probably should go to a place or be a part of a community that that has some shared values. Otherwise, it's going to it's gonna feel out of sync. It won't feel like a great fit. Um, and, and over the years at SMCC, um, we've had people come and go. You know, we say we value the guest. Well, because we value the guests, you need to show your kid's check-in label to get your kid out of class. And some people are like, well, I've been here for 20 years. I don't want to do that. 
we're sorry about that. We value the guests and people get cranky. Or um, what would be another one? We value helpful, hopeful messages. So when people are like, hey, why doesn't it feel deep enough here? Why don't you use more Greek in your sermons? You know, it's like, well, we value clarity. So we're going to be clear, you know, or I could go on and on. But but these are the things uh, about valuing uh, certain things that shape then our behaviors mm-hmm. as a church. Yeah, I believe it was one of the values you mentioned was that devoted people serve the guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that, because I think that could be helpful to listeners. How have you and how has South Mountain Community Church um, brought people into positions where they're actually serving the guests? Yeah, well, obviously, Sunday morning teams jump out as the simple thing. You know, if you're, we want the coffee to be hot and the doors to be open and people to have name tags on, all those normal, like, guest services things. Same with kids' ministry. That so we prepared for the guests. We know you're coming. The environment looks clean. Um you know, when you have someone over to your home, you probably spruce it up. That's because you value their experience because you have a guest in your home. You value the guest. So I think that that's kind of part of love. Love values the guest. Excellence is inclusive. Excellence includes guests. And so excellence is a huge way that we value the guest. We've thought through every transition. We've thought through what's on the screen. We've we've thought through every aspect of the experience so that um, there are no distractions. That really does serve the guest. So um, yeah, I think the way we value the guests most is just saying, look, Christians have their preferences. Christians really do. Um, And that's fine. Uh, But we're trying to create a culture where uh, Christians could set their preferences aside for people who aren't Christians yet. And that plays out in a whole bunch of ways inside of our church. Um, But when someone comes to me and says, why don't you do it like this here? My last church did. Or why don't you do it like this here? You know, I'd like that. Or we should sing more hymns or we should turn the volume down or whatever. We talk about how this actually values the guest. And um, that's a that's a desire of ours. And that's not going to change. Yeah. So that's kind of how we how we describe it. But uh, gosh, to value the guest, I mean, how we do it practically, um, I, I would say this, like I... I want my team to respond to emails within 24 to 48 hours. It shows that we care. Uh, we want our worship leaders to have practiced their prompts um, because we don't want them winging it because it gets confusing for the guests. So these are really small details, but but I'll, but I'll tell you, um, the details do matter to building your culture. And I would just add this, that if it's part of the culture then it really extends beyond the people who have a responsibility that they're accountable for. They're part of a team on Sunday. They're part of the service, you know, serving in some way formally. Mm-hmm. But what, what our hope is that in our church is we really want to see it affected the person who is not does not have a job description on Sunday morning, but it's how they actually interact with someone. They're friendly. They're they're kind. Um, you know, they're not just talking to their own uh, little cocoon, but they're mm-hmm. really welcoming people so that if it becomes part of the culture, then it's going to extend into the ordinary behaviors of the person, you know, who's just there on Sunday without a job. Right? Yeah. And, you know, valuing the guests, like some might say, well, is that just because you want your Sunday crowd to grow? Well, no, l- let me tell you, when someone leaves the LDS culture, it is one of the most scary things they could ever do. We hear stories of people parking in our lot, not being able to get out of the car, for fear of what their presence might mean to their mom and dad, mm. their w- place of work. I mean, they might have been told something theologically that bad things are going to happen in their life if they walk away. So when we value the guest, it is a massive step of love for this culture. So it, 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 it really is, there, there's, a, there's a why behind that value. Um, so yeah, value with the guest is, is huge. And, and sometimes people just forget what it was like to be a guest. There was a day that was all of our 
first day at church, if you will, you know? Um, and we kind of forget that. We kind of forget that. So we, we often have to talk about the value of, of serving the guest. And, and then it, it makes it really easy, though, for someone in your community to then bring their guest because mm-hmm. they know the people on the stage will not violate the trust. They will not do anything weird, spooky. They will not manipulate. They will not do any of that. And, and so we work really hard to be clear. Hey, service can be 60 minutes. Here's exactly what you can expect, which creates some predictability. And so each week, we, we want to have moments that are new. We want to have moments that are creative in our services. But your favorite restaurant, you don't want them changing the meal every time you show up. You want it to be predictable because you come, you've come to enjoy it. You trust the experience. So that's, that's important too, to how we kind of plan our ministries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are there any final things that you wanted to share that we didn't have a chance to? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the one thing I would share is this, um, you know, uh, it can feel pretty intimidating, um, to think about, um, getting involved in ministry to LDS people. And, um, I, I just want to say, uh, or, cause you hear stories of people who have been studying it for years or had this massive spiritual experience from God. And now they know that they were set out to do this. You know, I, my story is just kind of different. I, I would say people were kind to me. They invited me onto a team and, and the passion grew. And so I would just say to anybody listening, um, don't, don't feel intimidated by it. If you have the right nutrients in the soil of your life, so to speak, you have good resources, you've, you've, you feel connected, you're in community, um, just get started. Just start somewhere with this, mm-hmm. and you're not going to um, go wrong starting with vulnerability and attunement to people in your life who, who see the world differently or maybe come from an LDS community or are active in it. And I, I just think uh, that's important. I meet a lot of people who, who seem to be pretty intimidated, and, and I just want to say... Um, uh, this is a this is a, an incredible opportunity. We need you. Uh, please just get started somewhere. And I think that's the encouragement. You know, I, I think my story. People could look at it from afar and and say, "Wow, this must have been um, so spiritual or or, or so um, divinely orchestrated." And I, and I do believe God is at work behind all of this. But at the end of the day, um, I'm just so excited to see people taking their next step or first step to build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. in uh, religious places that lack the light. And so go for it. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, this is the Culture Wise podcast where God's good news meets the Latter-day Saints with wisdom and grace.